welcome. It's a pleasure to see you all for another instalment in our seminar series, part of the Research Network, Social Movements and Popular, popular Mobilization in the Middle East and North Africa. It's um, kindly sponsored by the Middle East Center and the Government Department. My name is John Shellcraft. I'm an associate professor in the government department. I work on labor, migration, and contentious mobilization in the Middle East and North Africa. And it's a pleasure to welcome you to this seminar. Uh, we have our honored guest today is uh, Claire Beaugrand, who is a uh, researcher in the Institut Francais de Proche Orient. And she's been there since June 2013, based in Jerusalem. She heads there uh, something called the Wafao program, the When Authoritarianism Fails in the Arab World program, on, quote, diasporas and Arab revolutions and transitions. And she works on transnational networks, nationality, marginality, political exiles. She has a PhD in international relations from LSE, here, and she worked, uh, the PhD is called Statelessness and Transnationalism in Northern Arabia, Bidoons and State Building in Kuwait, 1959 to 2009, and it's going to be published quite soon, isn't it, with IB Taurus, uh, called, under the title Stateless in the Gulf, Migration, Nationality and Society in Kuwait. So uh, we're looking forward to that. But she also has a, a string of publications the one that's most relevant to this paper, it's published in a book um, with uh, Abdul Khedi Khalaf, Omar Shahobi and Adam Hania. The book's uh, Transit States, Labour Migration and Citizenship in the Gulf, Pluto Press, and uh, Claire's article is In and Out Moves of the Bahraini Opposition. And she has a whole string of other articles going back to 2004, one in, in Maghreb Mashrik, on Les Etudiantes, Umanes at the University of Kuwait, and uh, um, Omani is female students in Kuwait University, and also um, an article on uh, in Humanité, uh, the Review Internationale de Archéologie et Sciences Sociales, on the emergence of nationality and institutionalization of social cleavages in Kuwait and Bahrain. And there's one coming out in a journal in English, a journal Arabian Humanities. 2015 on the limits of clientelism in Kuwait. So it's a pleasure to, to welcome Claire. She has an accomplished track record in uh, the, the, the study uh, of uh, exile uh, and marginality and nationality. And we have her paper before us, which we have all read. Just to say, if you want to um, tweet during this seminar, it's uh, hashtag LSE Beaugrand. Um, let me see. If uh, oh, just to mention, I mean, this is the last of the seminar series in the 2014-15 academic year, but we also um, will be will be back again in the in the, in the autumn. The first one is going to be Sami Zemni, I think, sometime in October, working on Tunisia and Labour, and then uh, Madawi Rashid's coming in in December on December the eighth. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. Um, otherwise, um, and, uh, and 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 we're lucky to have uh, Filippo uh, Dionigi to, uh, to act as discussant uh, as well. So so welcome to you. And um, 
And uh, so the running order is 10 minutes for, for Claire to present and then Filippo to uh, discuss. And then we open for a discussion on the basis of the paper that, that we have read. Okay, let's welcome Claire. Well, thank you, John, uh, for this nice introduction. Thank you for inviting me to this research seminar, and thanks to Sandra, the Middle East Center, uh, for giving me the opportunity to be back here at the LSE. So, the um, name of my paper is Legacies and Revolutionary Raptures of Bahraini Activism in Exile. Just to give you a bit of background, this paper is based on a very long-running interest in the Bahraini exile community, that led me first to conduct uh, fieldwork in Bahrain in 2008 among what was at the time um, the returnees, Al-Aidun, and uh, some of them have gone back to exile. And I revisited this issue in the light of what happened in 2011 um, in Bahrain. So I'd like to start with a sort of piece of news, recent piece of news that you probably, I mean, if you have an interest in Bahrain, have read. Here in the UK, on the 17th May 2015, the uh, Independent reported the verdict of an information rights tribunal ordering the limited release of a 1977 diplomatic cable. Limited, why? Because the full disclosure of the document would have an adverse effect on relations between the UK and Bahrain. The appellant, uh, Mark Owen-Jones, is a PhD candidate uh, at Durham University here in the UK and a member of Bahrain Watch. So this little um, piece of news illustrates well a few of the points I want to make today regarding um, exile activism. Two points. As opposed to advocacy or political lobbying approach, the target here is the liberal British ally of Bahrain itself. The, mean, the means used are the UK jurisdiction and the UK academia as well. This differs from uh, what has been theorized as the boomerang effect. What is the boomerang effect? Basically, this is when groups in one country appeal, appeal to citizens in another country through transnational advocacy network and they sort of pressurize their government to, in its turn, pressurize uh, the offending regimes. So this is different. Second point is the repression, the repression here is not conceived as a dynamic, well, domestic matter only, but as transnational one. And I quote Owen Jones, he talked about uh, bureaucratic repression on the part of the uh, Foreign and Commonwealth Office. So here we have transnational uh, actors involving both the state actor and both in the FCO, but also economic ones such as uh, arms companies, we'll see later, and the most invisible ones as well, low and PR consultancies. Um, my main argument here is that the 2011 crisis created the possibility for innovations in the exiled contentious practices of Bahrainis, while building on and overlapping with other forms of overseas advocacies. This kind of exile activism addresses and highlights at the same time the often overlooked transnational reach of authoritarian regimes. How am I going to proceed? Uh, my paper first maps the third, what I call the third wave of out-migration. And if you want more information, why is that third wave? I'm going to 
tell it quickly, but otherwise it's in the article uh, chapter that John mentioned. So I'll first map very quickly the third wave of art migration generated by the brutal crackdown on the 2011 popular uprising in Bahrain. And against this background, um, my paper analyzes, as an example, the actions of the informal group that created the Bahrain Watch Initiative, composed of what I call academic activists of mixed background. Different from, but complementary with, other advocacy groups, the modus, uh, modus operandi by-project of Bahrain Watch points at the context of transnational repression, be it limited mobility for nationals uh, through, for instance, denaturalization or civilians or communication strategies in a liberal context. From a theoretical point of view, I hope to shed some light on the interaction between forms of protest and evolving authority strategies of dissent control and repressive legacies. How do I use uh, the term innovative contentious action? I use it in the sense that activism enters in the sort of transformative dialectic with the control tactics of the Bahraini authority more than I use it in a judgmental way. I'm not saying like, it's creative, it's, um, it's not a, a judgment in my, uh, in my view. So this argument builds on two uh, currents of academic literature. The first one is the study of transnationalization of collective action uh, that emerged in the late 1990s to analyze groups whose collective claims and action cross borders and bypass states. This is somehow different because it typically was based on anti-globalization movements, Seattle 1999, World Social Forums or Fora or Climate Change Conferences. But of particular uh, usefulness to me is the critique of this trend of literature made by uh, Johanna Simeon, a French scholar at Sorbonne, who identifies as a shortcoming the exclusive focus of these studies on the NGO world and on transnational advocacy networks adopting norms that are unanimously validated at the international level. And why, why is it interesting to me? Because what I see here uh, in the case of Bahrain, is the gradual cracking of these consensual norms with the pointing at contradiction in their application here in the UK and the pitting of principles, for instance, for instance information rights and academic freedom, against uh, other principles like uh, those of national interest. The second trend of literature that this study engages with is that of exile politics, and uh, here I have in mind Anderson 1998 with uh, distance nationalism. What, what does he say, basically? Well, most of these studies originated in, um, in the U.S. and in the migrants' community coming from Mexi Mexico or South America. And it emphasizes the new political freedom that, was, um, that were found in the, in the West and the possibility uh, for the new migrants to promote identity organization repressed in their countries um, of origin. But what's missing here is basically the context here, the liberal context, and the constraint uh, that uh, the, the authoritarian regime where they were coming from are actually um, uh, posing on the exiled community. So I argue here that transnational activism actually responds to the authoritarian regime manifesting itself in the liberal context and vice versa. Uh, in terms of approach, as a result, um, my approach builds 
on the one developed by uh, Benin and Virel. Both were a part of this seminar, I understand, so I'm very honored uh, to follow in their footpath. You had Virel disowning that approach two weeks ago, but anyway. <laughs> Thank you. No, 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 that. I'm still no, following no, no, in something in his evokes. But anyway, no, no, <laughs> well, no, tell no. me that no, no, <laughs> exactly what it say. But it's actually both, <laughs> before coming to LSE, did emphasize the need to take into account the authoritarian context that is, well, in the Middle East, coercive apparatuses and the importance of threats rather than opportunities uh, to understand mobilization and to understand the form of protest and what they call self-limitation. Here in my case, um, um, I'd like to show that the Bahraini exile activism is more and more denouncing through its own means the framework in which its action takes place. So um, let me come to my uh, second part. Now I'll be mapping the exile activism uh, legacies and innovation. Uh, very briefly, as I hear uh, some are part of what I'm saying, so they know better than me, the Bahraini regime has had a long tradition of dealing with political opposition through deportation, entry denial to its own nationals and exiles. And exile. It did so uh, first to uh, counter the dissent of the opposition laid by the leftists, in the 1960s, then the Shiite Islamists throughout the 1980s and the 1990s, before most of them, uh, apart um, from Said Shahabi, came back in 2001, subsequent to a general amnesty. So to me, 2011 marked a real rupture for exile politics, as most of the Bahraini had gone back to the country, as I just said, and to be noted, um, Contrary to uh, the studies that have been done on Tunisian in France uh, or Moroccan um, uh, once again in France, the Bahraini community abroad is almost exclusively uh, political. Gulf countries know little economic uh, migration in the West and if, if any economic migration is directed more to the GCC country. So as compared to former waves of exile, the two first, leftist and, and more um, Shiite Islamists, 2011 political events and the subsequent repression shaped out migration in at least three ways. The first one, um, due to the general turmoil, um, especially in Syria, and, uh, and the GCC ranks closing, the exile destination have been more limited. And here I should say, uh, in this paper, I'm not talking about the... Um, flight routes towards Iran or Iraq to which I have done uh, no field work so I can't, I can't talk about that but they've been more limited and uh, mostly towards the UK um, new routes in uh, America and, and, um, and Germany second the 2011 event affected a wider range of socio-professional profiles um, well, like before, the, the first targets were the political activists, but in 2011, you have clearly identified um, activists, but as well politicians, uh, one of whom is here. Um, but also um, during the um, um, security. Uh, you have um, following what was happening uh, in Bahrain, waves of teachers who came uh, to exile, medics, and as well journalists. So as a result, you have like um, 
an important part of the exile activism that is devoted to human rights um, and monitoring, but as well uh, alternative uh, information with, for instance, Lulua TV based here in London. Um, parallel with that, you have a few uh, members of the opposition uh, in Bahrain, member of the WFAQ, the uh, um, political association that are here, and operate what I call like professional politicians in the sense um, that they seek to uh, establish a sort of uh, parallel diplomacy uh, talking directly to the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. And the third characteristic uh, of the 2011 event is that it accelerated and prompted the entry into activism of a new generation of children of activists, including the children of uh, exiled ones. So this is uh, where my case study belongs, uh, namely the, uh, third, um, the third tier, Bahrain Watch. So uh, two parts in the paper uh, to characterize it. First of all, I call it an informal micro-mobilization process. Bahrain Watch was created in 2012 as a result of the network gravitating around Allah al-Shahabi. It is composed of a very limited, highly educated team of PhD candidates or former consultants. And it mixes uh, Bahrainis with long-term uh, residents on the island, um, two of them being completely brought up in Bahrain, even though not being Bahraini themselves. The structure of Bahrain Watch is deliberately kept completely informal with no hierarchy and no status uh, attributed to individuals, so very much prompted to uh, evolution. Second characteristic, um, a circumscribed ambition based on network with magnifying effects, and here I'll, I'll talk a bit about the uh, um, modus operandi. Bahrain Watch's action takes the form of projects, all evidence and research-based, so there was already the case of uh, human rights activism, but what's new here is that most of the projects deal with and indeed have brought to the light the reach of the Bahraini government's ex external relations and actions in the UK in the domains, for instance, of PR that are uh, mainly in the hands of uh, consultancy, crowd control, arms import, and digital surveillance. Just as the Bahraini government uses resources of the consultancy-type mandates, so does this informal organization with its guideline principles of auditing, monitoring, and watching. I take the example uh, of the uh, government, the project called Government in Action. Indeed, Government in Action replicates exactly uh, the consultancy-inspired project by the government to enact the uh, reform which was actually the work of a British-based consultancy uh, called Freshfields. What I want to show here is that there is a direct um, uh, in, well, mimic, mimetic uh, response to a sort of consultancy-based work by the government uh, and on the side of the um, informal group or organisation. So uh, to conclude, I'd like to say that since 2011, the Bahraini exile activism has expanded and diversified due to the out-migration triggered by the regime's crackdown on the popular movement. While the activists see their work as complementary to the mobilization that took place on the island, their action have in fact taken new and original forms profoundly rooted in their western setting, that is as well the results of the former waves of migration of exile, and in particular in the UK's support uh, of authoritarian regime. And I thank you for your attention. Okay. Thank you.
All right, thank you very much. And now we're lucky to have uh, Filippo Ionigi uh, uh, to act as discussant. Um, he's currently a research fellow uh, here at uh, the London School of Economics, and he also has a book out with Palgrave in 2014 entitled um, Hezbollah, Islamist Politics and International Society. And so uh, thank you very much, Filippo, for uh, agreeing to act as discussant, and you have ten minutes, but let's welcome you. <coughs> I, I, I think we need even less than that, um, and, and this comes also with an with important disclaimer that um, I, I can't really claim a, a, a strong expertise uh, on Bahrain and also social movement theory is not exactly uh, the main focus of my, of my research, although I uh, I became increasingly familiar with the subject also because it's impossible to avoid it. Uh, with to, avoid John, John, to, to avoid John as well uh, in this context. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, um, but then again, you know, I, th I think uh, the exercise of, of, of giving feedback and discussing so, uh, um, is, is sometimes benefit from uh, points of view that comes mm -hmm. from external perspectives as well, uh, or at least I hope, uh, also in this case. Um, uh, Claire, Claire has written a, a, a short, what I think is a, is a work in progress paper uh, as well, uh, but, but it's very dense. Uh, I think it's dense uh, in, uh, in, 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 in two respects. One uh, is the theoretical substance of it, which I, I think has a lot of potential to uh, develop further. Uh, and then perhaps even more interesting is uh, uh, the empirical uh, work and knowledge that you provide, which I found uh, um, very unique and, uh, and hopefully I, w I really look forward to see uh, further developed uh, um, as a publication at some um, later stages uh, when, when you will be done with your work of course um, I think if, uh, if I understand um, uh, well uh, your paper and, and I hope I do I mean your argument is that in the wake of the 2011 events uh, the uh, exiled Bahrain community uh, in London uh, and uh, in Beirut, that, that these are the two main cities that you mentioned in your paper, but then now you added also uh, Germany and uh, uh, and the US as well. So I guess that's a, another aspect you're working on. Uh, has constituted this new wave, a, a, a new uh, a phenomenon of foreign mobilization uh, that is characterized by uh, informality and the use of uh, a vocabulary and uh, a normative repertoire uh, that... Uh, somehow was not um, as common before. And this normative repertoire you, uh, you mentioned is um, obviously um, resonates with the liberal democratic context in which uh, Bahraini uh, um, uh, watch, is, uh, uh, Bahrain watch is, is operating here in the UK. Um, I find that an interesting um, uh, development and, and something that uh, nonetheless I think uh, is not as new as you claim. And um, for this reason, I wanted to uh, just put forward, you know, for the sake of discussion, really, two, three points, um, and then you will be uh, obviously free to do whatever you want with them. Um, the first, uh, and somehow you already answered some of them in your presentation, which is a little bit more articulated than uh, your paper, but the first would be um, that you are, you're, you know, you're interested in highlighting the novelty and the innovation of uh, uh, this process of uh, mobilization. Um, but then, uh, the way you frame this into the into the um, into the paper, it does uh, it doesn't come true. At least I couldn't I couldn't find it as innovative as you claim it. Uh, apart from the very fact that you refer to the fact that there is um, a 
uh, new generation that is involved in this process. Um, and the fact that uh, the, Bahraini watch, the Bahrain watch, in fact, works on a project basis. And then, importantly, you refer that is, uh, this, this, this uh, activity is very informal. Now, you, for example, you don't define what is informal and, and what, you know, what, what, what would it means to be more formal in that sense. I've, uh, I was just checking on the web. In fact, yes, Bahrain watch is not registered as a charity, for example, uh, here in the UK. No, not officially, at least. I couldn't find it on the register of charities. And so on. So I wonder whether you can develop a little bit more. Why, why is informality so important? What kind of effect and impact has on the capacity of this uh, organization to work in that sense? And, and why do you think this is an innovation? I mean, after all, informality is typical uh, of uh, many transnational networks. Um, and this brings me to the second aspect, uh, which is the fact that um, Transnational movements uh, in the Middle East are um, very, very common uh, all across the region. And in particular, when we look at the uh, case of uh, Shia transnationalism, you know better than I do the work of uh, Laurence Louet, but also uh, Faleh Abdul Jaber and so on. Uh, wherever you go, their formalization is very, very low in any case, right? Um, I'm thinking, you know, the whole uh, Dawa movement to uh, Lebanon and so on, and all, all that kind of process and so on. So formality, I mean, it's, it's not exactly an innovation in that sense, or at least I didn't understand it, uh, um, as, um, or at least you haven't persuaded with the uh, paper we have provided. I hope you uh, have a chance to develop this further. Um, the second aspect is, um, and where, where I think that the, you know, your claim of um, looking at an innovative phenomenon is, is not entirely persuasive, is the fact that um, and you don't consider or you don't uh, establish a, um, any comparative case uh, within your uh, uh, paper. And I think, uh, you know, on the contrary, if you want to broaden uh, or to deepen the analytical value of your research, there, there is some material I think you could try uh, to uh, look at. I mean, this, I know these are very superficial examples and um, you probably would not agree very much, but, you know, think of cases as uh, the Kurdish, you know, the, the whole diaspora system. Uh, the Kurdish diaspora, the Palestinian diaspora, to an extent even, you know, um, I'm thinking is of, of Israeli lobbying system in the U.S. and so on. They might have some kind of, uh, um, they, they, they may turn out to be useful uh, comparative cases you may want to look at to an extent. Um, and see, uh, you know, in that sense, you know, again, uh, dispute to what extent this is innovative, not what, what, what kind of language they use, is that similar or not. Um, I keep receiving these emails from Shia Watch as well, which I guess is another uh, organization which is based in Washington, as far as I understand, for example, uh, which it seems very similar. And then another case um, that I think is relevant um, is that of the uh, Muslim Brotherhood in post-2011, uh, uh, so post-Morsi uh, um, uh, removal from power, uh, also here in the UK, which has witnessed something similar as well with the uh, I don't know if the, the, the government in the UK he has been has been asked by the by Egypt to set up a committee to look into uh, um, the possibility that the Muslim Brotherhood is carrying out you know activities mm -hmm. that are entirely transparent. So there is a phenomenon that, to an extent, uh, is very mm -hmm. similar to what you described uh, with regard to Bahrain, where you know the uh, liberal democratic setting of the UK constitutes a, you know a basis to act and uh, and advocate certain uh, um, certain positions in this case in Egypt and so on. And on the other hand. The authoritarian state that plays its cards and uses its instruments within the UK to uh, try to um, interfere with that process uh, and to an extent 
certain, you know, you know, certain aspects, certain dimensions of the UK government being uh, acquiescent to those uh, requests, at least. Um, and then comes my third point uh, to conclude, and this, um, uh, this this brings me back to the more IR uh, context and literature, um, which is uh, with regard to the kind of norms and uh, uh, and values that uh, this. Um, uh, that, by, that, that the Bahrain Monitor is, uh, uh, is using. Um, and in particular, you know, I refer, there is, there is quite a lot of literature, and you, uh, and you refer to it only sometimes, such as uh, Seeking and Finemore and so on, and the whole transnational network systems and the uh, processes of norms, international norms diffusion. I, have a, uh, I, can, say, I can say any more uh, detail about this, which, is, uh, which I think you would find interesting. Uh, in uh, um, trying to understand to what extent um, these movements and these forms of uh, uh, international advocacy are um, in, in fact fully receptive of liberal norms and values or whether they use them only for instrumental and political reasons or whether even more interesting and this is the work of Acharya and uh, uh, Vinjamuri and Kayoglu and so on to an extent um, they are socialized into this process but then they even contest uh, and they have reshaped the validity of certain norms, they reinterpret the validity of certain human rights principles uh, on the basis of a different you know, cultural or religious background and so on. So there is a process of uh, cultural contestation of the, of the validity of those norms and so on, which, is, uh, which I think is something you may want to uh, uh, perhaps look at as well to an extent. Um, then again, these are really uh, only suggestions. Uh, overall, it was uh, uh, extremely interesting. I very much look forward to see this published. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so Claire, you get to respond to that just briefly, and then we'll open the floor. Yeah, thank you very much, Felipe. Um, yeah, the uh, format was uh, set up as being so short, but uh, hopefully, I mean, uh, I'll nourish uh, my uh, thoughts from your comments because. Uh, and to expand it, if I may, because I was at 3,000 words, but um, I hope to um, clarify things and, uh, and expand it. Um, so three points uh, I noted. Uh, to which extent is that innovative? Um, I think part of my, um, part of my analysis was uh, driven by the, um, the perspective of the actors themselves. Why is that so important to be informal? Um, why did they stress uh, that they were not registered uh, as an NGO? I think I stick to the perspective of the actors um, as for what is informality and here I would disagree with you um, in terms of what I find interesting in this in the transnational links I'm looking at is that is sort of um, Works from what we call liberal, but here I'd like to um, I'd like to say that the I see liberal and authoritarian as a continuum, and definitely uh, not as uh, uh, two um, distinct things. Um, so we have um, things in the UK uh, having tendency to be more formalized. So here uh, it put more stress than, for instance, what Laurence Loire shows in, in Kuwait, whereby. Uh, it's more um, interpersonal. Here we're talking about organization, whether you want to claim to be an NGO, whether you want to claim to be an NGO fundraising and this kind of thing, or whether you refuse it. So um, that's uh, to um, sort of address your point. I guess I stick to the, uh, to the perspective um, of the... Uh, 
of the actors themselves. No comparative case as well. Um, yeah, definitely. I think um, I should definitely be more comparative uh, if I had the means to do some, some field work in a particular aspect. So that's definitely um, a shortcoming of my research being only focusing on Bahrain. What I think would be relevant is maybe to broaden it to more Gulf exiles and see how, how it works here. Um, Kurdish-Palestinian diaspora, I would agree with you to a certain extent. What the literature has been looking at is to which extent the diaspora are affected the conflict, the d conflict domestically. And here that's not exactly what I'm looking at. I'm lo more looking at the processes or the type of action or the type of protest being, um, uh, being put in place by the different uh, organizations. Um, Post-Morsi Muslim Brotherhood would be, uh, uh, would be, I guess, far more, um, well, um, realizable or uh, doable for me if I wanted to, to compare it. And I'm interested in the fact that more and more uh, we're talking about soft powers. I guess what really interested me um, in the action of Bahrain Watch is that it acts as a way to reveal certain number of transnational mechanisms that were unseen, just like the way, and this is something I'd like to dig further, um, uh, the way the consultancies um, here in the West are playing an extremely important role um, in the um, in the reach uh, and the control of dissent. Uh, third point, norms and values. Um, yeah, well, Thanks for the point. I take it um, into consideration. I think, once again, uh, what I understood from my interview is that even more than the cultural contestation, and that was a bit what I was trying to say, basically here there is a cracking of these norms, but it's not necessarily the norm that the uh, power relationship that they imply, the way they are imposed from one side and, um, and not abide by um, I think here definitely there is the, the question of the hegemony that is the uh, discourse on a norm coming from an uh, unequal power relationship. But I do thank you for, <laughs> I mean, I just like a reply from the top of my hand, but I definitely take that into, into account. Okay, all right, thanks. So, floor is open. Yes. I'm a PhD student here in the International Relations Department. Um, maybe my question will be a bit outside of the scope of what you're looking at, but I thought it would be something interesting to look at, which is the relationship between the exile community here and the opposition community that is still in Bahrain. Because I, uh, I would say that I would, I would like to know your opinion about that or anyone else who is sitting today at the seminar. Because um, is it is it kind of is is it is the relation between kind of contentious and kind of uh, it's kind of this rival relationship or is it something that is more cooperative and works together? Because um, some you know there is uh, you would, you could argue that the opposition that is still at home kind of has a vested interest in kind of resolving the situation with certain government forces. Should the situation? or should a 14-year rises for them to do so, whereas the opposition that was forced into exile or chose to go into exile kind of doesn't have that interest. 
to the extent that the internal opposition does. So I just want to hear opinions of that. And I think also from a historical perspective, there has been exile incidents even in the earlier 20th century when the British agent exiled Sunni merchants who opposed British reforms and um, the, um, the um, kind of the uh, removing Sheikh Ali and stating his senses. So that's also interesting for a historical context to look at the British-driven exiles of certain Sunni merchants and also uh, Sunni families. Um, and the comparisons with the Shia uh, transnational groups, I think that's an interesting thing, but at the same time, to what extent does the opposition in exile in Bahrain, in Bahrain opposition exile want to be framed within that context? Because I would say the Bahrain situation makes it more challenging and risky for them to kind of be framed within a Shia religious discourse, whereas they would like to be known more as a national, whether that's successful or not, that's good for people to decide. Mm. I'm happy to take some more um, before we write. Nelly. Yes, uh, thanks, Claire. Very much enjoyed the reading the ethnographic side of your, uh, of your paper, given that we are in London and we always know those people face to face. One thing about comparison, I mean, Filippo uh, uh, mentioned uh, that you know, he would encourage it. And you said you couldn't do the field work. And I, I would suggest that you know, there's quite a lot of secondary sources. And it's not expected of. Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's a Bahraini UK based consultancy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, there's quite a lot of secondary literature. And uh, because it's relevant to London, perhaps you need to look at the Iraqi exiles throughout the 1980s and 1990s and the activism that was taking place here. And so um, in a, and, and that, was, that was brought to my mind because you refer to this uh, sort of almost like another uh, polit a politician base in London for Bahraini exiles. And I remember there was talk uh, about the Iraqis as uh, forming an exopolity outside Iraq for, for years. So perhaps that would help contextualize and give a comparative uh, dimension. Um, I would have liked to see more on the British government in your uh, paper, because it's really, really important and relevant to Bahrain. And we can't understand what's going on in Bahrain without the colonial historical yeah. relationship, plus the ongoing <coughs> contacts. Um, so uh, on, on that, uh, I, you mentioned something which is really interesting, that the exile, the politics of exile, banishing people, uh, is a legacy of the colonial uh, rule. And it's really interesting to compare that uh, to Saudi Arabia, where the punishment is actually to ban people from travel. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's interesting. And I don't think it's just the colonial uh, legacy that explains this difference. Because it, as much as Bahrain, I'm not sure whether a deliberate attempt by the Bahraini government to send those people abroad, or they just escape and go to other places. Uh, so I think you need to sort of look into that and compare it with the traditional Gulf approach, which is keeping them in and actually banning them from travel for lots of, you know, for all sorts of reasons. And uh, just uh, one one uh, point about uh, this transnationalism. Uh, you know, if you go to any of the Bahraini centers that you mentioned in your paper, I was struck by how much uh, there is no actually solidarities from, let's say, Saudi Shia, who never turn up. Are, would, do you have in your ethnography 
uh, any kind of indication that they do have some kind of solidarity here in exile, when they actually in Bahrain and in Saudi Arabia, we know what happened in Saudi Arabia immediately after 14th of February. So how do you explain this? And I, I didn't have an answer, and I asked the Saudis, you know, why don't you go, well, we're busy, etc. So I'm not sure what's going on there. So this sort of Shia hegemony and transnational links, I mean, on the ground and ethnography, I didn't see a, 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 an evidence of it in London. It might be elsewhere. Okay, so there's quite a few questions. Okay, so why don't we, why don't you tackle those? Yep. Um, on the question of the rivalry and cooperation relationship, um, I mean, most probably there is a wide spectrum of relationship. I would say um, mostly um, there is a complementary work between the uh, different types of movement. And uh, just to give an example, I was told like Bahrain Freedom Movement in the 1990s played a huge role um, in Bahrain itself as a means of um, just like I would say social media role, uh, mean of information, diffusion of information of what was happening uh, on the island um, because at the time there was um, no such information so um, I mean I, w I would uh, I, w I could multiply the different example but um, I'd like have people here maybe um, to um, uh, to join in the discussion, but um, you got like El Wifak, of course, uh, former uh, MPs here, that is not Wifak anymore because it's not allowed uh, by the 2005 law in Bahrain, but that still uh, adds here uh, in the UK. So you have definitely kind of relationship. Um, of course, what you do here, and that, that was a bit what I wanted to show as well, is that um, the context is important. Uh, Verel and Benin say that, but the context of exile does change what you can do. And um, what I was told by a um, member of Bahrain Watch is that basically they can't do much, uh, they can do less or different thing than what is being done uh, in Bahrain in terms of their opposition. So that's quite a bit, uh, that's bit of the reasons why they choose certain uh, kind of strategies. So sort of complementary work uh, as well the mobility in and out um, uh, movement for those who can. Um, Madawi uh, concerning uh, Iraqi exile, once again yes I think well here I did not um, as I did not claim to make a comparison in this paper so that's something I can add. Uh, once again, I, I take it on board, but um, I can't much comment on that. Uh, on the um, comparison uh, with other um, countries and Gulf countries, um, yeah, definitely at some point I, I think I, I have a quote saying that um, yeah, transna uh, transnational repression is not only repression, it's as well a punishment. And I think very much that we still have... Um, in the 2008 presentation, I called that ostracization, which like was the Greek way to actually punish a citizen to to be banned from the community. Yes, you have that, and you have that in that sense that uh, that was my first um, interest in the in this question of exile. Um, when I first started in 2008, I look at this makrama, and uh, if you see part of the 2000 decade 
sort of misunderstanding in the politics of Bahrain is that uh, the Afu is considered as a is the amnesty is considered as a makrama is not is not um, is not presented as a rights or is not presented as a recognition of anything. There is no process whereby we recognize an opposition, we recognize a process of permission. Um, so, yes, there is this aspect of it. As for the solidarity here, um, how do I explain here? Um, I got a bit of uh, ethnographic information uh, regarding the very peculiar parts of uh, Exile community from the Gulf here in London, which are the Bidun. The Bidun are very, very aware of what is uh, happening, uh, for instance, Dar al-Hikmah or uh, Abrar, but they are not as politicized as Bahraini. That's what they say. They, they keep off politics. The Bidun are too scared to actually uh, participate, but they are very well aware that Bahraini is far ahead of them. So there is maybe this difference of politicization, I can tell. Um, as for uh, Bahraini, uh, as for Saudi, um, I can't tell because I haven't, um, I haven't quite um, um, crossed the way of any of them. But once again, if uh, Said want to um, maybe add anything on this uh, solidarity of, of from the Gulf, um, I'm happy to for other which I thank for coming, um, for jumping in the discussion. Thank you, Claire, for this very deep presentation, although it is a bit short, but uh, we but sweet. I'm sure it is there. Uh, the content is probably more important. But uh, with regards to the political exiles, to the Bahraini exiles here, you have two other points that needs to be cons uh, considered. First, what is the reaction of the host uh, country here? How does the government, the security services, how do they react to the activism? To the activism? Mm. And this is really, really a serious matter to, uh, to activists here. Uh, when every time you go out and come back, you are stopped for five, six hours. When for anything, you, when every tweet you write, is recorded and then you will be uh, questioned about what, what you meant by this, what you meant by that, then that is also a limitation on, the, uh, on what you can do. And also you have to take into consideration the, uh, the nature of, say, Bahrain Saudi uh, governments, the amount of money being spent by, the, by, those, by, by Saudi Arabia mainly, which is uh, really, the main defender of the Bahraini government with regard with the with the Britain, uh, the, there is a lot of pressure on the British to do something about the, these exiles. They spend a lot of money on public relations companies, on uh, parliamentary uh, parliamentarians, uh, on the media, in order to curtail the uh, activities of the exiles. Uh, Furthermore, we have also to recognize the, that we are dealing with um, a community that is denied their basic rights in their own countries, including the revocation of nationality. Uh, and I just realized that it's not only me who had his nationality uh, revoked, but also other people in this room from other countries of the Gulf whose uh, nationalities had been uh, revoked before myself and before the other Bahrainis who are here. 
and this revocation of nationality at a time when you see this nationality being granted to thousands of others who are non-natives, who are brought from the outside, puts a lot of pressure also on the community here because the, many of the women would like to go back to see their, uh, their families in the summer holidays and so on, but that is a constraint on them. Uh, I think the political activism is there. How much our friend mentioned about the collaboration or cooperation between the inside and the outside. Of course, this is a very sensitive and dangerous area. I, for example, cannot speak to my family. I haven't spoken for my sisters and brothers for years, simply because I fear for their uh, welfare and their, and their life. So there are a lot, there's a lot to be talked about when talking about the uh, activism in exile. But I am sure my other colleagues here, including Sayyid Ahmed Al-Ghraifi, who, who was himself uh, uh, imprisoned and tortured, and who, who runs uh, bad now, uh, similar to Bahrain Watch, but uh, it is a different body, I am sure they, they can also shed some light on this debate. So do you want to respond to that, Claire? That Saudi money for the PR companies, the British government security, the, it's because... Um, and also I <coughs> forget about, you mentioned it, sorry, uh, about this uh, dropping or monitoring of the system by that uh, Gamma, uh, yeah. what's it called, the, the program, which, uh, King Fisher, which was implant, implanted in our, in, in our computers uh, last year. Maybe it's still there. We don't know that our computer is still. Yeah. Uh, or not. Yeah, I want. Well, not so much to reply than to comment. Thanks for the comments, but it comes back to a bit to the uh, first question. Um, what I find um, interested um, as a as innovative is that to me there is a triangle. There is a um, the exact community. There is the Bahrain government and there is the British government. And what is interesting in the contentious repertoire here is that um, Bahrain Watch, as part uh, of a broader exact community, is actually sort of targeting this transnational mean that you just mentioned and that I, that I developed more in my paper, which are um, the the way the government um, is managing to reach even here. And that's something that I find very interesting in the literature because it feels like when you're a liberal country, then suddenly you're working under less constraints. Well, the, of course, they are less, but they are in a different type. And here what I find innovative is that... Um, is that there is a type of protest that actually is targeting um, this transnational uh, repression, uh, repressive context that we tend to uh, we tend to overlook, and that that's not once again comparatively that's not peculiar to Bahrain, even though with a lot of money. But if you think of um, uh, Algerian in France uh, being and, and even more Tunisian in France being uh, widely monitored uh, by Ben Ali, I think from an uh, intellectual point of view is interesting as Beryl and Benin one against, uh, once again I'm repeating myself but to take into account this context into which the activism is taking place hmm. Can I throw in a, a quick one apropos of what you just said about the influence of the Bahraini government extending in the UK mm -hmm. I was in the um, 
French archives not very long ago and I noticed that the files on the assassination of Mehdi Ben Barka, the Moroccan who was assassinated in France in the early 1960s, who was a socialist, a democrat, he, they are classified for 100 years, which is the longest classification that I know of in those French archives. And so I feel like maybe it wasn't just the influence of the Moroccan government extending into France, it was the French government took some initiatives or they play a role. So isn't, I mean, I mean there are UK interests, aren't there, that's at work here. So uh, perhaps that's what you mean by the continuum between liberal and authoritarian. Yeah. But is, is, I mean, right, that, that's all. I just, is, is that... Part of the analysis. <laughs> you, you wouldn't have said the last bit. I mean, I would have. I think a continuum to say there is a clue is an understatement to think about what the British government and these authoritarian regimes are doing. It's more like basically collaboration. Collusion, yeah. I, I don't think a continuum would describe what's going on. But anyway, I, it maybe it's not enough, but I think it's a. It's, it's, the beginning to try to rethink the categories in which we're with which we're working, like exile community in the West, like as I said, um, protests and <coughs> granizo, like seeing it as an opportunity to actually have uh, a certain um, uh, possibility to um, register organization and to sort of um, taste freedom and this kind of thing. This all needs to be rethought uh, in the light of what we see. Um, I think the courts will actually be a good simply because it exposes these kind of collaborations. And it's you know, the cases that are uh, you know, of uh, exiles and how they're dealt with when they go to asylum secret uh, courts, home office, um, even with like other uh, you know, more sort of, uh, people who are actually suspicious and put on terrorism charges, the courts are not able to proceed simply because of all sorts of reasons. And, and, and the, the court would actually be a good way to expose this kind of um, collaboration. You mean the, the cases in, in yeah. yeah. All right. Can I just give a, just a small example of what uh, Professor Mudaw was saying. In Bahrain in 2014, specifically in October, a High Court of Justice here in the UK has quashed the immunity of a Bahraini prince who was accused of torture. He is the son of the king. His name is the Prince Nasser. So the, the court made the ruling, which was the reasoning of the ruling, was so clear that because UK is one of the signatories of Convention Against Torture, and because of those bases, they quashed his immunity, and his diplomatic immunity is quashed. The surprising part is, within the same month, the guy has visited the UK. His immunity was opposed on 7th. On 26th, he was in the UK, challenging everyone that, oh, I'm here, and, and, and no one can even touch me. So there is something like a policy by, by a government which could even sometimes undermine uh, a ruling from a high court of justice because, because simply there is a bigger interest. The guy was there to meet up with someone which no one would know who, who, who that guy at the time, but later on, we figure out that he is the guy which has been responsible on doing the deal when it comes to the British recently base, uh, the British base in Bahrain, which was announced in December, a couple of months later. 
So sometimes you can say how deep you can go. Is it the legal system which could sometimes create, I mean, it's a fearful mechanism. Would it stop something? Sometimes the answer is it might be not. Is it the media exposure? You go to every single major outlet in this country, and they spoke about this case and so on. But at the end of the day, the government can do whatever they want to do. And if the interest of, of I mean, for for the sake of, for example, Saudi, an example, where they could buy, purchase 8 billion worth of weapons, and then if they started the war in Yemen or in somewhere, then of course the West will fully supply them and support them on, on anything like that. Similarly with Bahrain, it's far deeper than what we think. I, in my strong opinion, at some point we think that those repressive regimes are continuing by their own. The answer is not. The answer is maybe the torture. The reason why, for example, UK would not, would never acknowledge that there are human rights crises in Bahrain and not would never acknowledge that there is an issue of torture. Maybe because if there is no torture in Bahrain, then the regime would collapse. That's the only, the repression measures are the only maintaining ways to keep those regimes standing. And if the UK going to have a very firm and strong stance, against their own potential allies, against their first buyers of weapons, then, then where is the British interest? So there is a clear conflict of interest in here, and this is why sometimes you go as far as you, as you can, but you know, the answer could be quite, the lesson could be quite hard. Can I add a little footnote to that that sort of ties together the previous points? Sorry for missing your talk, but uh, my name is John Hall, I'm a member of our own watch, so it's, <laughs> I'm not sure if you've already covered this, but we were just also had a court case um, concerning an SEO document from the 70s. Did you talk about that? Yeah, I started with it. Sorry? I started with it. Yeah, it's okay, so sorry. That I won't and thank you for that. attending, yeah. But yeah, that sort of that ties together, this sort of thing, and like the, because most of the evidence was heard in secret, um, so we don't even know what the SEO evidence was. We've got it on our website, but it's just